Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I'm your host, Chadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Keras Life Sciences. The Precision Oncology Alliance is our large research collaborative network where we collaborate on data science, on precision medicine, biomarker research, with the hope that our research activity can improve the outcomes of patients with cancer. Today's podcast is about cutaneous oncology and how precision medicine and molecular profiling has shaped and changed the way we care of patients with cutaneous cancers, whether these are melanoma or non-melanoma skin cancers. And I couldn't be happier than to host Dr. Sue Park from the University of California in San Diego on today's podcast. She will introduce herself in a little bit, tell us a little bit about her career, about her career and what got her interested in cutaneous oncology. But I actually I have to share with you a story uh, about how little I knew about cutaneous oncology. When I was a resident, and I was, I think I was doing a, a, a dermatology elective in residency and I was seeing a patient uh, and I was describing the patient's rash to my attending physician. I told him there's a spot on his back and he took me aside and he said, Chadi, we never in dermatology ever say a spot. What are you talking about? You have to describe that quote unquote spot. So I was demoralized when it comes to dermatology. And then when I did my fellowship, uh, really the biggest question that we had, frankly, during fellowship in cutaneous oncology was, do you give adjuvant interferon to resected melanomas or you don't? And this has progressed very differently. And now there are many patients with metastatic melanoma that could live for years, thanks to the advances in science and to precision medicine. So... I am very pleased to have Dr. Sue Park on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. And by the way, before we air this episode, make sure to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and refer your friends and colleagues. Without further ado, Dr. Sue Park from UCSD on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Sue, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Uh, maybe a little bit about you, where you are, what you do, how do you spend your day in terms of uh, patient care, research, stuff like that, and and what got you into cutaneous oncology? Uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so I'm based in San Diego, the best city in the country. We have the best weather. <laughs> and I... Um, work both at the university and at the VA hospital. And so I feel really privileged to provide care to both veterans and non-veterans. Um, I also feel fortunate that I'm able to upkeep my cancer um, knowledge in basically all types of cancers because at the VA, I see everything. And at the university, I focus solely on cutaneous oncology. And we've seen a lot of really great advances over the past decade or so that has really changed the field. And I think that's why I also went into oncology because that type of change is really meaningful to me. And I want my life to mean something. And I want, I want my work to mean something. And that's what drives me and keeps me moving forward. Every day is a little different. And I think that's what I like about being in academia. Um, I think sometimes I often get bored easily. So I'm, I, I'm always looking for the next project or the next step, always trying to um, you know, go that extra mile. I'm quite ambitious, I think. 
but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's actually a really good thing, especially for women. Um, so, you know, one day I'll see patients and, you know, it, it's really gratifying. And then the next day, maybe I work with fellows, med- medical, you know, students, um, residents, and that's a different type of satisfaction and fulfillment I get. And then maybe the other day I'm doing, you know, clinical trial work or trying to make our um, investigational trials better. Or I'm seeing a patient in the hospital having a goals of care discussion, trying to make the time left for that patient meaningful to them. And so every day is different, um, but it's what keeps me on my toes. And that's why I do what I do. It's amazing. You know, I mean, again, you know, doing clinical research, teaching and patient care. And like you said, they intersect with each other really uh, very nicely. And it does keep the variety does keep things going, which is really very important in cutaneous oncology. um, And maybe I know we talk, we talk uh, again, Remember, I'm not, I don't know much about cutaneous oncology, but in my mind, we talk about, I know obviously there's squamous cell cancer, basal cell cancer, and then the melanomas of the world. It is, is, as a medical oncologist, do you see also the squamous cell and basal cell? In my simple brain, I feel these are seen by dermatologists, but maybe that's changing. Yeah, that's changing a lot. And I actually, I focus more on non-melanoma than melanoma, but I see both. Um, it's traditionally, you know, basal cell, cutaneous squamous cell, the non-melanoma skin cancers, you know, they often do see dermatology and dermatology does a fantastic job of doing Mohs surgery or whatever they need to. And they often don't need to see an oncologist and that's great. But the field has changed because we now have a lot of patients have organ transplants and those patients are at higher risk of getting really bad non-melanoma skin cancers. And sometimes it just gets really out of control. And at that point, they really do need the help of a medical oncologist to direct their care. And in general, the population is getting older. We're starting to see a lot more of these skin cancers that have just, you know, no one has sought care, especially with the COVID pandemic for the past two and a half years. And so I'll see patients with really extreme lesions to where, you know, dermatology cannot offer anything. Often surgery is no longer an option either because of how morbid it would be or because the disease has already progressed um, to, you know, have metastatic uh, presentation. But, you know, immunotherapy has changed the landscape even in those patients like it has for melanoma. And immunotherapy has a, you know, a pretty great response in those patients. And a lot of those patients are able to maintain their clinical response over time. And so nowadays we think, you know, is there the possibility of some type of functional cure for some of these patients that had these you know, like extreme lesions. And so the field is really evolving and it's really interesting. Yeah, it it has changed a lot. And, you know, some may argue, well, let me ask you this. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Like why, how, what do you attribute the advances in treating melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancers over the past 10 years? It's mainly the science and the intersection between the science, the people at the bench working with the clinicians really trying to understand, you know, what drives the disease. And that's how we were able to figure out that, you know, melanoma is a very immunologically driven cancer. And whenever immunotherapy came out onto the scene in, you know, 2010, 2011, first in clinical trials and then approved by the FDA, it completely changed the landscape for those patients. You know, can you imagine 
in 2009, having metastatic melanoma and being told that you only have eight months to live. And so you won't be able to see, you know, your son graduate high school. And nowadays, you know, with metastatic melanoma, you know, half of those patients, if they get upfront immune therapy, you know, a lot of them can live past six years or so. And so, you know, when you think about it, what could I do in those six years? Maybe I could see my my son graduate or, you know, take this trip I've always wanted to take, live life. And, you know, you could also imagine that during those six years, some new treatment comes on board and that new treatment makes that six years eight or nine. Yeah. And I mean, and we have found some of those new treatments in the form of targeted therapy. And that would not have been possible without newer sequencing technologies we have nowadays that have evolved from Sanger sequencing back in the, what, 1970s, 1980s. And, you know, we're able to find those molecular alterations that drive each patient's tumor. And as we accumulate more and more data, hopefully we'll find more and more therapies for patients. So the way I was thinking is, again, it's impossible to cover everything, right, in a 20, 25-minute interview or a podcast. But... um... As I'm listening to you, what I'm thinking will be nice to hear from you. What are the top, let's say, five questions that you uh, in the cutaneous oncology community are trying to answer or are hot that they really need to, uh, from a research perspective, in the melanoma and non-melanoma? I mean, and then, you know, just, just to understand where the field is going, what are these top five burning questions that we need to look at in both in both settings? So I think one question that we still haven't fully answered or are waiting for other studies is, you know, we know that the DreamSeq trial told us that in BRAF-mutated melanoma, upfront immunotherapy is better, but we still don't know what happens to a small proportion of those patients that, you know, passed away very quickly in the beginning. Is there a way we can sandwich treatment? Is there something else that needs to be considered? And so... Um, for a small subset of BRF mutated patients, they don't do well with immunotherapy, and we need to figure out why. So I'm going to classify that as immunotherapy-resistant tumors. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one. Or just something, yeah, something's going on that we don't understand. And then I think another thing is, um, and this probably goes more broadly for immune therapy, but you know, we we've known about immune-related adverse events for a long time. We still have no predictive biomarker for those patients. And we've looked at so many different ones and nothing has really panned out. And I think that would just really help to even further individualize and tailor therapy. You know, really make sure that we're giving the right treatment to the patient, whether it's immune therapy or targeted therapy. So I think, you know, clarifying the immune-related adverse event landscape is really important. That is very, very good. Okay. Yeah, and that goes beyond melanoma. Yep. And it's yep. really going to get bigger because we're using IO and more and more indications. I right. think a third thing that, especially in cutaneous oncology, and I think the breast um, field has, you know, really done a great job is, you know, what is the role of neoadjuvant therapy in both melanoma and non-melanoma? You know, um, we recently heard data in the form of um, an abstract at ESMO about the SWOG study, neoadjuvant pembrolizumabs, not quite yet standard of care, but a lot of the data coming out now about neoadjuvant in Merkel cell, cutaneous squamous cell melanoma, you know, that might really be the way to go. You know, maybe we don't even really need adjuvant therapy. Maybe, you know, it might be better than adjuvant therapy. And how does that 
type of upfront treatment intersect with our um, surgical colleagues and our radiation colleagues for non-melanoma at least. And so that's something that is a really hot topic that still needs to be defined better. Uh, Let me think about number four. Number four, I think it pertains to both melanoma and non-melanoma, but we know that you know, immunosuppression, you know, more specifically in the form of organ transplant, chronic immunosuppression, very strong driver for, you know, skin cancers, especially non-melanoma skin cancers, especially ones that are more biologically aggressive. And it's just related to the immunosuppression they get. We really need to find better treatments for those patients because we know that if we give them, you know, PD-1 blockade or some other form of immune therapy, they have an extremely high risk of organ rejection. And that's really only tenable in patients that have a kidney transplant because then we can fall back on dialysis. You know, not to say that dialysis is not, you know, it's it's not very pleasant either. The quality of life is really bad on patients with dialysis. But, you know, if you have a heart transplant or a liver transplant, we don't have anything to fall back on. And so we really need to figure out, you know, what treatments are out there for these patients that are not chemotherapy. The BRF mutants are in um, metastatic disease. And then we talked about adverse events, new adjuvant and adjuvant. Is it right now, in terms of advances, just trying to bring it a little bit more for clinicians who are listening, that uh, just trying to get few pointers that, again, from current standard of care. After resection, do you give adjuvant therapy to everyone right now or just to select folks? And who are the folks that you give adjuvant versus not? And what do you give when you decide on giving and for how long? I know a lot of questions. That's okay. Very, very practical, you know? So um, adjuvant is standard of care for stage 3B and stage 3C. Um, and it's either in the form of one year of adjuvant immune therapy. So that could be with either you know, PD-1 blockade with pembrolizumab or nivolumab. Or if you're BRAF mutated, you also have the option to get one year of targeted therapy. And both seem to have equivalent outcomes of, you know, improving the recurrence-free survival. And, you know, perhaps it may prolong overall survival, but we won't know that for a very, very, very long time because that's just how adjuvant studies are. And, you know, these patients tend to do pretty well. Um, there are some patients that have stage 3A disease where the, you know, lymph node involvement was only found on a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And then when the dermatopathologist takes a look at the tumor or the lymph node, they see less than a millimeter of tumor. And those patients have a pretty good outcomes with no therapy. So even though they are stage 3, for stage 3A that has less than one millimeter of tumor in the lymph node, um, we often tend not to. Um, offer adjuvant therapy because their outcomes are generally very good. And so the, for those patients, we offer, you know, regular routine surveillance like we would do. Um, for stage two patients, now stage 2B and 2C, that, you know, the approval for adjuvant PD-1 blockade with pembrolizumab was just, I think it was earlier this year that it was FDA approved. That is more of a discussion with the patient um, because there, you know, it's not without toxicity, you know, we often think PD-1 blockade is so, you know, so easy now because it doesn't traditionally have all the horrible side effects of chemotherapy, but if immune-related adverse events are their own own beast. And, you know, in the trials of adjuvant, um, especially in the stage two patients, you know, some patients had diabetes, you know, type one diabetes as an adverse event. 
And that's lifelong typically, where you would have to, you know, give yourself insulin in every day. That's a life-changing event, especially whenever you think about what am I getting from adjuvant therapy? Well, it's just a, you know, recurrence-free survival benefit. And like I said, especially for stage three, we still don't know, like in stage two, if it's actually going to, you know, help you live longer. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. You might end up with, you know, being a type one diabetic or, you know, having, you know, hypothyroidism. And a lot of people think hypothyroidism is, you know, mild, which when you compare it to the other immune related adverse events, okay, that's fair to say, but, you know, you have to take a pill every day. You know, yeah. most of that is permanent. Yeah. So when when I was in training, one of the things that we've always talked about um, in melanoma, a couple of things I'd like you to react to. One is ocular melanoma. I recall a lot of my uh, attending physicians telling me this is a completely different beast. So I'd like to know from you if you think this is still true in 2022, 2023. And the second uh, part... um, you know, like other solid tumors, but maybe melanoma is more prone to brain metastases at the time of recurrence uh, than maybe some other type of uh, solid tumors. Are there anything going on with the new therapies that are reducing the chances of uh, uh, brain recurrence of melanomas? Um, so for ocular melanoma, to you know, go back to your first point, it is a different beast and it really tends to, you can think you got it all and you watch the patient even for, you know, decade, 15 years out and it comes back. So ocular melanoma is most commonly in the uveal tract. So it's often known as uveal melanoma. And um, those patients typically do not, you know, most of them can be treated, you know, by the ophthalmologist, but even whenever it's been appropriately treated by the ophthalmologist and the radiation oncologist. So that type of melanoma is most commonly treated with a plaque. So it's brachytherapy by the radiation oncology oncologist. And typically um, that's all you need, but you know, this type of melanoma likes to stay latent and then likes to exhibit hematogenous spread. And so you really have to watch the patients very closely for quite a long time. And in those patients, we actually do risk stratification in the form of castle testing um, because that has been shown to be prognostically um, superior compared to the other ways we can risk stratify patients as, you know, like low risk for having metastases in the future or high risk. And the area, the, the organ that it really likes to go to is the liver, it likes to go to the liver preferentially and then the bone in the lungs. And so if you have high risk, we will typically know, watch you in form of scans and perhaps blood work on a yearly basis. But, um, you know, those patients also, if they've exhausted those options, they don't really respond that well to immune therapy, but that's all we really have. And so we know that combined immune therapy in the form of PD-1 blockade and CTLA-4 blockade is superior just to PD-1 blockade alone, but that's another area where we need to learn more about it and see if there are other treatments that could help those patients because it's also devastating as well. And then in terms of brain metastases, you're right. So melanoma has an increased propensity to have brain mets. And, you know, we do have, you know, therapies that do penetrate the blood brain barrier. You know, the targeted therapies do, immune therapy does. If a patient is an extremist, we'll often, you know, refer them to our, our radiation oncology colleagues. But, you know, there's a lot of work being done in this space 
but there's nothing that has truly translated out to any treatment coming on near in the future specifically for those patients. But there are a lot of different like strategies people are trying. Um, and I think recently there was some paper that had um, mentioned that, you know, if you have a, you know, if you have a brain met and you sequence it and you have a certain genetic alteration that it, you know, it tells us your melanoma is more likely to be aggressive and maybe you need to be watched more closely. So we'll st- we're still learning a lot about the brain mets. We do sit, we do have some tools under our belt, but it's an area that, you know, remains to be um, further explored. This is what Jimmy Carter had, right? Didn't he have, uh, it was was brain mitts, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he only got pembrolizumab and he's still working on his house every day. (laughs) It's amazing. Do you, uh, do you, uh, is surgery in the fit patients still an option for uh, like solitary or stuff like that? Oh yeah, we will definitely consider that. Yeah. We still do surgery. Maybe in the last couple of minutes, and I'll let you go, is just, um, you know, when you mentioned um, uh, BRAF um, earlier, obviously, you need to do, um, you know, sequencing to get if the BRAF is available, uh, is is present or not. This is completely, I mean, this was not something that you had done 15 years ago, obviously, uh, it was something that was done uh, now, uh, when you see a patient with newly diagnosed melanoma, is molecular profiling becoming standard of care in your practice, or is it only for metastatic disease? Or is it like, how do you decide uh, which patient you really need to send their tissue for uh, profiling? So I'm a big proponent of profiling because I really like to have all the information. And, and so perhaps the only patients I won't do it in is stage one, but I will do it in stage two, stage three, stage four, because um, even if it doesn't impact my management at that moment, or it's not immediately prognostic at that moment, I'm still able to contribute to some type of repository that, you know, I'm later able to perhaps access and then I can, you know, contribute to research in that way. And this is the only way that we're going to move medicine forward. It's the same way, you know, when you think about it, the only way we move drugs into, you know, to FDA approval is through clinical trials. So, you know, contributing patients to a study. So in essence, I see this as the same thing, contributing molecular data to a repository that we can look back at later and try to understand, you know, the biology of what we're dealing with. And so, you know, I'm... I think my biggest hurdle is, you know, it's not me ordering it or it's not the patient not wanting it. It's mainly the insurance company. If, you know, but we can, we have tools to get around that sometimes. We have tools to get around it. And I honestly think they're going to come around as well. I mean, it's, it's just the way it, uh, look, I, I had to do peer to peer review for PET scan for staging lymphomas. I mean, don't, I mean, listen, it's, it's, (laughs) it's crazy. But I do think we have ways around it, and hopefully they're coming along, because I just don't see that you can really manage patients in the next few years without having the full array of information. Anything I should have asked you about cutaneous lymphoma, precision medicine, the new research that I have completely forgot to ask you? Nope, I don't think so. I just want to say one thing now that you mentioned insurance. I really hope those people really understand that you know, if their family members were in this situation, they'd want molecular profiling on their family members. So I think they really need to have some empathy and realize that, you know, what we're asking for is not, you know, it's not that much. 
honestly, sometimes I feel that these folks, again, they just have like a protocol, like a, like one of those sheets, right? Like arrows, do this, do that. And I don't believe, you know, oftentimes when you do these prior auth, it, it's not going to be an oncologist even, right? It could be a pediatrician that is doing the prior auth for you. That's so. true. But I mean, if I think about it myself, I would, I would not feel good inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I hope that they are listening to this podcast. Uh, well, before I let you go, what do you do for fun? How do you spend your free time? Um, so in San Diego, I like to take advantage of being outside. So hiking, running, biking. San Diego. Yeah. Uh, as I, as I live in Chicago, I can totally appreciate now, uh, what's happening in San Diego and the beautiful weather. Dr. Sue Park, thank you so much for spending some time with me on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I appreciate your support. Don't forget to let me know how we are doing on this podcast by sending your comments and opinions to cnabhan at karisls.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Karis Molecular Minute podcast and let us know how we're doing. Refer your friends and colleagues to the show. And thank you to Dr. Sue Park for being my generous guest on this podcast. Until next time, take care of yourself.